Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Strategy Series sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. It is my honor and pleasure to welcome today retired United States Air Force General Jeff Cobra Harigian, the former commander of the U.S. Air Forces Europe and Africa. He was in command during the run-up to Russia's 2022 invasion of Ukraine, preparing NATO air forces to surge an unprecedented amount of air power to deter Russia from miscalculating further against the alliance. He's also a former commander of U.S. Air Forces Central, spearheading the campaign against ISIS and standing up to Russian forces in Syria. Before that, he helped integrate the service's fourth and fifth generation aircraft. He retired from active duty last summer and is now teaching, advising, and also consulting for Lockheed Martin. Jeff, it is an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Vago. It's great to be here and uh, always look forward to our conversations. Uh, same uh, here. Uh, our series of conversations with leading strategists and thinkers is sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems and devoted to the memory of one of the nation's greatest national security strategists, Andy Marshall, the late and former director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. This strategy series is not affiliated with the Andrew W. Marshall Foundation. Before we get started, Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics and Nautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. As I mentioned, Ultra Intelligence and Communication sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Uh, Jeff, thanks very much again uh, for uh, joining us. It was terrific seeing you in person at the uh, the West Coast Aerospace Forum, uh, which is uh, a key venue, and you and General Wilsbach, the commander of Pacific Air Forces, uh, did a terrific job. And I want to get to some of those lessons learned questions in a moment. Uh, but on the evening of February 23rd, with the expectation of Russia's invasion the following day, something uh, nearly 200 or at least more than 150 Allied aircraft, manned and unmanned, were ready to get airborne in minutes to deter Russia from further uh, miscalculating, as I said, against the alliance. Getting there, however, took years of dedicated effort across the alliance, which has some of the most congested, tightly regulated, and fragmented uh, airspace in the world. What was the shaping vision, and what were the big and little things that had to get sorted out until that moment to allow the alliance to do what it needed to do when it needed to do it? So as you can imagine, um, when I took uh, the commander's role in 2019 um, and had had an opportunity to, to dig in with General Walters on many of the um, advances he made, there were some uh, fundamentals that we knew we needed to get after to be able to interoperate uh, as we not only deterred Russia, but prepare ourselves for operations that could occur in the future. So we had to start with uh, how do we ensure we're connected, being able to do VTCs, uh, share not only from the U.S. side to AIRCOM, the NATO air component, but then to the nations, in particular for me, with the air chiefs. So I started with that baseline, and then that grew into, as we began to see the um, Russian activities, uh, the requirement to ensure we were sharing information with them. So we now had the capability to do that. And it, importantly, we were building trust and confidence across the air component force on um, what was actually happening. So that as requirements popped up, whether they be for ISR or for um, the nations to provide airplanes to cap for us, we, we had to first have the underpinning of sharing the information and then uh as they understood the activities and we were aligned with respect to what was happening we were able to now lay out the operational plan that allowed us to be in the proper position when the uh, russians invaded that night i mean what you were doing right was uh, less a technological challenge and more of sort of a cultural and organizational challenge and it's stunning to me that even though we've had nato for seven decades uh it's still uh, relies on, you know, individuals sort of being like, hey, look, here are some specific things that we have to uh, resuscitate, for example, in the kind of connectivity, granular connectivity. From your standpoint, what were the, the big and the little lifts that had to happen to get you to that point? Well, the, the first key lift is as uh, trivial as this may seem was actually being able to do a, a VTC from my headquarters 
on the U.S. side at Ramstein over to the, the NATO AIRCOM headquarters. You might think, well, clearly you had that capability. Nope. We had to work through what it was going to take to go from, say, NATO secret to U.S. secret to be able to do that. That, that was a baby step that got us started. But ultimately, as you highlighted, it was more about the relationships that uh, we had been working. And, I, and as you highlighted kind of in the opening, I knew several of the commanders when I was in the Middle East because those nations contributed, of course, to that effort. So when I came back to Europe, I already had a pretty good baseline of, I'll call them my friends and, and allies that I'd been working with. But as we went through the course of, uh, you know, I'll call it the six to eight months of preparation, um, we started to have more and more VTCs to share uh, what my vision was from the commander's perspective in terms of operational requirements to then reinforce with them, hey, I'm going to need some help. And as you know, you know, you, you can't build uh, trust and confidence overnight. It's going to take time. And so I was fortunate in that I'd had time to work it when I was in the Middle East, then continued those efforts when I got to Europe. And I think that that truly, Vago, laid the framework for us to be able to roll our sleeves up and ensure across the force from um, the combat air patrol locations to where we had tankers to where we had uh, the command and control facilities. That was all part of those discussions. And frankly, those commanders getting in my head in terms of what I envisioned us doing together. One of the important things uh, the administration did was to do an unprecedented disclosure of information, not just to allies and partners, uh, but also uh, publicly uh, in sort of a, a countdown to get folks to take this seriously. I've got a Ukraine question because I know you were talking to your Ukrainian counterparts uh, multiple times a day uh, by, by cell phone and, and other means. Um, but what were, from an airspace, you know, it, you, you realize that it had been three decades since the end of the Cold War. The airspace had been freed up. For many people don't remember that when they go to Frankfurt Airport, half the airport was Rhine Mine uh, that mm -hmm. closed in the early 1990s as a peace dividend, right? So from a connectivity standpoint, from an airspace management, uh, airspace management perspective, everything changed. How did Washington make the changes that were enabling how did our allies and partners make the changes that were enabling to sort of get us there, right? Because this is some of the most congested airspace in the world. And we as Americans in particular take our intelligence so seriously that sometimes even mundane things, we don't sometimes want to share it with allies and partners. Yeah. So um, first off, you, you know, you hit the nail on the head there and that once uh, we were giving, given the guidance coming from Washington, D.C. with respect to what we could share, and as you can imagine, you know, we were already talking, particularly from the air component perspective to, you know, my um, my teammates on what was going on. But then I was able to take uh, that guidance and I'll use the term operationalize it such that on about a weekly basis, what I was doing was um, meeting with the air chiefs um, and we did what we called an um operations and intelligence update where we basically laid out here's what's going on um here's operationally what we're planning and then uh you know here's our assessment and way ahead with a you know now around the horn what are you guys seeing and um you know how, how does this resonate with you uh based on what we're telling them and um that was very effective because it facilitated our ability to understand what the key issues were one of those being exactly what you just highlighted which was hey we don't have a joint operations area a joa where you know you can go wherever you need similar to you know uh if you think about what we did during iraq or afghanistan pretty uh pretty easy area to go where you needed to go because you didn't have a lot of restrictions completely the opposite in Europe. So two key nations I worked very closely with. One was Poland. And I'll just tell you a quick story in that um, we recognized there was going to be challenges in ensuring we could be positioned properly inside the airspace. So um, I recognized I needed to fly up there, sit down with their key leaders, and I needed to bring some of my uh, subject uh, matter experts with me. 
So she was a young captain and she, you know, as we're flying up there, Vago, she lays out her plan. Here's what I'm going to tell them, blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to listen to them and figure out what they want to do. Cause this, this is their nation and they know how to handle it better than we ever will. So she went in there, uh, then had a great discussion and, you know, the way it played out, as I said, you guys got 45 minutes because I got to get in an airplane and go back. They go in there for 30 to 40 minutes, come back, give us a five minute brief and basically say, here's the plan. And I won't go into all the details, but it was a perfectly well-coordinated uh, and probably the plan that's still in execution today, I would suspect, that leveraged the way they do business and allowed us to uh, be where we needed to be. Very similar situation happened in Romania. Um, and all of this was based upon a shared understanding of what we needed to do together, but also the recognition that for those of us that were planning it at the operational level, needed to shape our plan to meet the way our partners do, do business. And that, that was key to our success. Americans like to lead uh, and tend to want to lead all the time. But in this instance, um, you know, and leading from behind gets kind of a, 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 a sort of a bad rap, whereas the United States actually has been particularly effective by maintaining alliance cohesion and not always being the first guy out of the blocks with something, right? Uh, the Poles uh, are sending combat aircraft. I think the f first on tanks were the French. The Brits have led time and again, opening the door and blazing a trail, even if that trail was coordinated, for example, through, through Washington. What's the right balance point? to let your allies and partners, right? So you have the vision, you're driving it as the commander, you're an American, but at the same time, what do you take from other folks, have them lead, right? Because culture change is about empowering folks to actually step ahead as opposed to being told to move, right? Mm -hmm. What's that balance point of, of, of sort of pushing and then pulling good ideas or, or sowing a seed or getting a good idea from somebody else and advancing it? Because at the end of the day, it's a collective allied effort everybody yeah. gets credit or everybody gets blame. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think I, I was very fortunate uh, due to my experience in the Middle East, where we had to work hard to sustain that coalition and think our way through. All right. How, how do we keep the team together here? Because, you know, this is going to be a marathon, which is very similar to the situation we're in now. And so um, to your point, I felt like there were specific situations where, um, as the commander, you got to say, here's where we're going. Um, and as you do that, I felt it was really important to be um, very inclusive on how I came to those decisions. And particularly when it comes to building the plan, um, we had to do a fair amount of learning, a good example being that airspace. Uh, and another situation, as you can imagine, that was a bit challenging when we talk about rules of engagement. Because each nation is going to have their rules, there's NATO rules, and you had to pull that all together, which frankly required a lot of listening. And so as you try to work that balance of, you know, when do uh, you as the commander slap the table and say, here's, you know, here's where we're going. Um, a lot of that is going to be operationally dependent. And so as I put together, I, we put together the plan for what we were going to execute on night one of the invasion, uh, that was very inclusive. So that balance was more about, hey, what are you guys thinking? Um, what are we missing? Get that feedback, get that conversation. And that particular part of the planning required a whole lot of listening because I'm getting feedback from my staff. I'm getting feedback from the other commanders. And sometimes they were moving out on things their nations had approved that they shared with me. So we weren't surprised. And that was very important to how we were going to uh, ensure we were all together on this. And then though, you know, when the decision has to be made that we're going to launch and, you know, the, the operation is beginning, that kind of comes back to, well, that's my job to make that call. We got to lead right now and do, uh, you know, operationally what's required, which is a little bit different, you know, from, from the, uh, you know, gathering the information and those kind of things. So I think it's largely going to be uh, very much dependent on that where you are in the planning, where, where are things unraveling, where you've got to make a decision that we've got to move out on together. Because sometimes 
um, if it's required, you got to just make the decision and then be accountable for it as you go forward. Almost immediately when the Russians started moving, um, you gave the initiation order. And in minutes, about 150 or more NATO aircraft were airborne up and down the entire Allied border uh, with uh, Russia. What was the Russian response to that? Because I've been told that it, there was that we could tell that we got their attention. It was pretty clear as the uh, situation was building uh, there'd been messaging at uh, at all levels that uh, that we were going to be ready from an, a broader NATO perspective. I would offer to you that um, you know we had been pretty public about where we were moving airplanes, and um, as you know, we fly the um, uh, air policing missions at that time. But those were you know fairly small packages of airplanes and very specific airplanes. But in preparation for this. Uh, we've said, hey, we're going to we're going to defend the eastern flank and defend NATO's, NATO's border. So my sense is the Russians uh, had an idea that we would be there. I don't believe they understood uh, that we were going to be in as many locations as you highlighted from basically ultimately the Baltics all the way down to Romania in a position to, to defend the border. So it, it was clear to us um, pretty uh, soon after, you know, they started the invasion that they were going to, um, not want to, uh, get into the mix with us. I'll put it that way. In other words, as, uh, they drove South and executed their attacks into, uh, Ukraine, um, they, they would drive basically in, in positions that we had complete situational awareness on where they were at. And, uh, you know, my opinion was they wanted no part of uh, messing with NATO at that particular time. One of the big challenges U.S. officials had was not just convincing our allies uh, of an impending Russian invasion, but indeed convincing the Ukrainians uh, to take seriously the warnings. Um, there was a lot of frustration here in Washington. I know there was frustration in Europe. Uh, and you were in contact with senior Ukrainian leaders, along with the entire UCOM, NATO and, and U.S. teams. Um, what did it finally take to convince the Ukrainians? Because it was understanding what was coming that allowed them to disperse to protect as many of their assets as they could. Otherwise, the Ukrainian Air Force, its air defenses, right? I mean, a lot of the things they're depending on now would have gotten shellacked on, mm -hmm. on day one. So um, much of this, uh, I give credit to the relationship that the California um, Air National Guard had built over the years with the Ukrainian Air Force. Uh, I'll never forget, it was, I don't know, six weeks, two months prior, uh, somebody introduced me to a, uh, a key uh, individual who had uh, relationships with many of the Ukrainian pilots. And um, when he came into my office, I basically had the conversation that said, okay, Give me some context here. Who do you know? How do you know these guys? And then how do we start building a relationship at the higher levels? That then drove a visit I had. Um, it then drove follow-up discussions on, okay, how do we start building that trust from me to uh, the Ukrainian Air Force commander who became a very good friend of mine because we were talking so much that allowed us to have frank conversations. Uh, you know, because as you can imagine, and you're highlighting, things were getting tense. Uh, we were seeing things from an intelligence perspective that were getting talked about. Uh, and we were also having uh, conversations with them with respect to their readiness and, you know, what their plan was. And naturally, he's protecting his plan. And, you, you know, because of the communications that we had, um, it was clear that he was trying to do the right thing and, and work the operational security and, you know, right. classification levels to keep those things tight. But at the same time, uh, as you highlighted, um, we were having a lot of discussions about, okay, uh, we believe here are some things you ought to be thinking about when it comes to moving your assets, the timelines for doing that. What problems are you trying to generate for the Russians to make, targeting difficult, 
their ability to close the kill chain difficult, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, sometimes that, that was a, you know, from my perspective, a unique conversation where you're trying to help, but not be too pushy, but also ensure that you were getting your point across. And that that's a little bit of, you know, threading the needle in these discussions, but over time, I felt like we could be more and more frank with each other with respect to what was happening, because, uh, you know, once the invasion started, there were lives at line uh, on the line and, and, you know, people were were fighting for survival. I'm glad they moved enough stuff out of the way uh, that it didn't get bagged uh, on, on, on day one. Uh, I want to take you uh, to uh, the question of uh, culture change, because in each of the jobs you've held, you've tried to drive uh, culture change. And obviously, we've heard a lot from the chief, uh, from the secretary about the importance of accelerating change uh, or losing. And then at the heart of it is, is culture change. Um, you know, go- going away from a directed, this is what's in Air Force instructions, to actually opening the aperture, to being more risk tolerant. Um, you've been one of those leaders uh, who's been uh, trying to do that. You know, uh, in our conversations, even uh, soon after uh, you took over, you started empowering captains to get back to eight ship formations and bigger formations. Uh, you know, don't brief the generals and have the generals brief. You guys do the brief. The only thing you needed to know, as you once uh, uh, told me uh, in an interview, was, look, did anybody get into any trouble where I've got to get involved? Is there a macro lesson I need to intervene in? Otherwise, l- let's just keep going and, and devolving uh, authority. And, and you've been trying to do this at the airman uh, level, right? Officer enlisted as, as well as allied, uh, I'd say. What, what are, how, do, how do you empower Right. What's an empowering leader? What do you do to empower subordinates and what are the keys to driving sort of lasting culture change from your standpoint as somebody who's done it at multiple levels? So I was in a unique situation, particularly in the Middle East, where we've been fighting a particular way. And I think, Vago, context is important for me on this because um, I was in a position where I, I saw culturally how Many of our airmen had been brought up in an environment where, uh, for a myriad of reasons, some of it was political policy, some of it was the way we did business, uh, some of it was the way that technology had evolved, where we felt like at a centralized level, you had the appropriate situational awareness to, to kind of grip specific situations. Well, as things unfolded, particularly in Syria, it was clear to me based on some tactical decisions that were made and um, how people reacted, i.e. asking for permission, that things had to change. And, you know, this was driven a, a little bit by the environment. Uh, we had <clears throat> some policy changes that were ongoing, but the airmen had, and, and it's, it was even broader than the airmen, because as you recall, we had, you know, uh, Navy guys that were fighting for us uh, in the air component and we had to uh, first and I'll tell you where it started was I felt like I needed to go look everybody um, in their eyes and tell them that I trusted them and this had to do particularly with Syria and you know told them um, hey you don't want me flying your airplane back from the headquarters I trust you guys to make the right decisions and I will back you up and so I provide that context to tell you that part of empowering and culture change starts with uh, when you say something, you better back it up with action. Uh, because I, I sense that uh, as you communicate this and, you, you know, you can look at a myriad of examples out there where people are talking about culture change, but then their actions don't reflect that empowering attitude that, hey, we trust you to make the right call and go get after it. Because as you know, if, you know, big fight happens that there will be no ability to over control this thing. You're going to provide commander's intent. You're going to lay out the plan and you're going to expe- expect people to execute because that's how we're going to win. So as I got to Europe and we were, you know, working through, um, you know, some of the specific operational, um, issues that were popping up, we then drove to uh, Agile Combat Employment. And I'm using that as a bit of a forcing function for change. And you're hitting on a couple of the things that, you know, I went out and talked to people and said, 
hey, go do this. You know, take your 200 people out there. Um, you're young captain. You're in charge. Get after it and then bring, you know, the important issues back to me that I should go fix. And um, I had to drive that with the collective team down through the entire staff to get the staff at the headquarters to believe this is the right thing to do. I had to get the wing commanders who had to be willing to buy some risk to say the same thing down to those captains. So getting that alignment vertically from myself through the staff to the wing commanders and then down into the trenches was critically important. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you, sometimes I, I felt like I was repeating myself, but it was important that I kept saying it so that people would believe us. Um, and, and to me, that was the key to, and, and you don't change culture overnight. Everybody knows that. I mean, this is going to take a period of time, but reinforcing what you're saying with actions to me was critical to getting the team aligned with what we were trying to do. You know, one of the things the chief, uh, talks a lot about, right. I mean, he's driving these same, uh, messages. And I know that every change-minded leader is like, look, I'm opening the cage. Some people are going to bolt out of the cage. Others don't want to come out of the cage. Um, you know, have to be encouraged out of the cage and some don't want to come out of the cage. And so one of the things that he expressed frustration was to me was the number of people who would come up to him and say, hey, boss, is this what change looks like? And he would say, you know what change looks like, right? We, you know, just go out there, do it. If, you know, what, what, what's, what's the way to incite folks uh, to change? How do you deal with those who don't want to change? Because there is a concern that every organization becomes um, sort of change stalling, right? You, you may want to propel mm -hmm. it in a certain direction, but at some point it stalls out, right? U.S. Air Force is a great example, one of the most innovative organizations in history that did get too wrapped up in its own regs. As you said, lots of operational lessons in the war. We can, you know, have a 8,000 mile screwdriver because we can. What are what are the, what are the thing what are the ways to deal with that um, those dynamics and and be you know encouraging because then the you know folks the criticism folks make is that then you know everybody's like oh the rule book doesn't matter and and then you have anarchy right so what's what's that balance point from your standpoint <laughs> so I I think first in approaching this um, you, you you can't try to solve world hunger. Right. You've got to approach this in an incremental fashion, those forcing functions for change that allow you to keep the momentum. And, and to me, that's that's where uh, you will gain traction with those that may be the naysayers, those that are, you know, happy with the status quo where you continue to find um, specific areas where you can drive, whether it be a change in how they execute, a change in the way they think, because the reality is change is hard. And it's much easier to sit back and like you say, you know, sit in your cage and go, okay, you know, this too shall pass and, and I'll wait the commander out and wait for the next guy to come in here. We all know those kind of things happen. Um, so, you know, incrementally taking, you know, bites out of this, recognizing that this is a journey, it's going to take time, but using every opportunity uh, that there was an issue that would pop up to drive that mindset, to drive home the, hey, it's okay if we don't get this exactly right, but let's keep moving forward because it'll make us better in the long term. And I can give you examples, you know, every week, we typically had things pop up where, you know, they'd bring to me or, or, uh, or my deputy a decision brief on some particular topic. And that was another opportunity to drive home the, hey, you know, we're in this together. And you can look around and you can read people because, Fago, this is all about people. And, um, you know, recognizing those that either weren't going to, you know, put themselves out in front to say, I'm going to be the, the change leader. Um, and sometimes that's okay. You know, I've always found it was helpful to get all the voices, give them a chance to talk because you're going to smoke out who's who and then find out where that middle ground is to keep the ball moving forward. And it may not always be um, as big a change as you want, but I think from a, a leadership perspective, just keeping the momentum, some level of change will allow you to keep moving forward to ultimately what your goal is. 
uh, and, and then in turn, right, it has uh, or organizational effects. Um, speaking of organizational effects, you're somebody with a lot of experience uh, with Russia uh, and Russians and, and how they operate. In, in Syria, you were the commander uh, who uh, ordered airstrikes against the Wagner Group mercenaries that were threatening US and allied troops. Uh, you commanded uh, USAFE during the darkest days of the Ukraine war. There's always a tendency, right? I mean, some people were making Russia 10 feet tall, whereas those who knew Russia really well always saw them as not 10 feet tall. Uh, but then there's also in the wake of all of this to think that the Russians are maybe two feet tall, right? What's the way we need to think about Russia as an adversary over the next five, 10, 15 years? Because there is this sense that whatever it is they want to do, they just will keep coming back at it, uh, right? They're going to make Ukraine an unviable state. They'll just keep coming back at it. What's, what's the way we need to think about them? And what are the most problematic capabilities they have from your standpoint, right? Again, we, we tend to make their air and missile defenses 10 feet tall sometimes. I mean, they're effective against certain kinds of threats, um, for, for example. Anyway, walk, walk us through how to take the long-term vision and, and capabilities we have to worry about and that which we sort of maybe worry less about. First, I think it's, uh, from my perspective, important to remember that, uh, you know, this all revolves around Putin. And Putin, to my mind, understands one thing, and that's power. And uh, acknowledging that uh, those policies and what comes out of Russia, I would argue, start and end with him. So if you acknowledge that, and, and believe that to be critical as we go forward here, I think that sets the framework for how we set our posture, our readiness, where do we focus as we go forward relative to the Russians? You know, they, um, they're, they, they remain dangerous. Um, as, as much as we um, assessed where, what and how they were going to operate at the beginning of war and at the and how they uh, were unable to achieve, for example, air superiority. Um, if you peel the onion back, I, I think there were indications that they, they were going to have some challenges with respect to doing that. And Vago, I think it's also important to acknowledge the fact that, you know, joint integration, gaining air superiority, synchronizing um, all domains to achieve effects is not easy. Sometimes uh, I, I believe we as, uh, and I'm not retired, but as the U.S. military, um, we're pretty darn good at it. And we made it look easy. And those that don't know the intricacies of how that all happens, because it's not just relationships, there's, you know, tactics, techniques, procedures, there's interoperability of our technologies, et cetera, et cetera. Those all facilitate our ability to generate the effects that you know the, the public sees the U.S. military do, and that's years of training, years of investment, and it's hard work. So as you look at that from a Russian perspective, I would argue uh, there are areas there that um, they were unable to execute for a myriad of reasons those things that we've made easy. So as we go forward here, um, I've got to believe they're going to be learning. They're, they are taking this in. It may not be at the same level that we learn, uh, but they remain a dangerous adversary. Uh, they will fight this from an attritional perspective uh, for as long as it takes. Um, I, I truly believe that's where uh, their heads are at with respect to this particular problem set. And it's going to take some uh, very sophisticated negotiating and uh, discussions to get to uh, where we all want this to end up. But from a strategic perspective and how we deal with this, deal with the Russians, I think we have to, again, acknowledge where the center of gravity is with respect to Putin. And then, uh, you know, can't forget the fact that they've got nuclear weapons. And that's something that's always got to be in the back of our minds. And, you know, you can have the broader debates on when, would he go there? What's it going to take? Um, but we can't be naive enough to think that that's not something that you can just compartmentalize. And it, it will always be something as we look at our longer term vision of how we posture ourselves with our allies 
together to ensure that we've got um, the right competitive advantage across domains to ensure, just like we did on the eastern flank, that uh, the ultimate decision maker recognizes he doesn't want to go there because of uh, the capabilities that are available to the broader alliance. And to me, that'll be key to our success in the long term. And any of their, aside from nuclear, any of their capabilities that you think are particularly worrisome? You know, the, the airplanes they have are, are capable. You know, they're not fifth generation airplanes. You know, it's, it's going to take them a while till they get the, the 57 where it's anything that uh, would meet uh, the capabilities that we have. Um, but I, I, I think we need to be cognizant of what they're doing with hypersonics, uh, what they've been doing with uh, cruise missile type capabilities, and recognize the strategic impact they can have with those capabilities uh, as we go forward. And we ought to be, and, and I know this is happening, is thinking through how we have a truly integrated and layered defense capability across the alliance to be able to uh, first deter that activity, and then if we need to, be prepared to fight. And clearly, that's been uh, shaping, obviously, the investments uh, that we're making that you're privy to and guys like us are not uh, but behind the screens, both on the munitions side of things and obviously with next generation air dominance and collaborative combat aircraft and, and, and the like. Um, I just want to ask one uh, a brief uh, question because I do want to get to the lessons learned uh, of this. I did want to uh, talk about the cultural pieces first. Um, the, the Russians are expert at precipitating a crisis that they can leverage to our advantage and sometimes taking uh, advantage of our prudence. Um, they collided with an MQ-9, brought it down on, uh, over international uh, waters uh, in the Black Sea. We replaced the MQ-9, but actually have it a little bit farther back uh, from uh, Crimea to be useful. Are, are things like that a mistake, uh, it, right? I mean, does that sort of allow Putin to sort of keep and, and Russia to sort of does that give advantage? Do we need to be more cognizant about doing stuff like that? Right. I mean, on our program, there were people who were saying, hey, it's time for us to put a manned airplane there uh, to to assert our right to be there. What, what's mm -hmm. your sense? Yeah. So as you can imagine, I, I went through several iterations of this and it's and it's all about managing risk. And as you highlighted, you know, the Russians uh, uh, have a unique ability to try to drive a false flag and, you know, build a, a story that's uh, completely false. And uh, then that thing gets traction and, and you know, now we got to moonwalk it back. So um, to me, the discussion often came down to, okay, how much risk and, you know, you get into the, well, let's describe specifically what kind of risk we're talking about. Is it political risk? Is it risk to the airframe? Is it risk to the aviator? Um, is at risk to the, the broader scenario exploding into something larger. And that, that was all part of the equation, which then drove, all right, if we uh, put a specific capability in a certain location is for, as an example, is the collection that we get so important that it's worth the risk. And, right. you know, you can think your way through that, whatever that platform might be. And sometimes it was clear, you know, it's like, OK, this isn't worth it. We're not getting that much out of it. Um, is it worth us, you know, driving in there and, um, you know, frankly, irritating, kind of poking the bear to see what they're going to do versus, you know, no, nope, we're demonstrating the fact that this is international water and we have a right to be here. And so it you know, not news to you, but this is not a digital zero or one answer. Right. Uh, there's a myriad of things that go into it that um, I think is, you know, it gets discussed in the press. You, you've got to take that all into account. And um, sometimes, you know, there were positions where the military is going to say, hey, we believe it's important we be there. And politically, they say, ah, it's not worth it go a little bit farther back and, you know, now we've got to negotiate that. So, um, right. you know, importantly, I go back to, there is a certain amount of demonstrating strength and, um, you know, there are times to try to use the Alliance to help us think through the best ways to demonstrate that posture to achieve what we're trying to get out of any particular 
um, situation we find ourselves in as that narrative goes forward with the Russians. Let me uh, take you to lessons learned. You and Cruiser Wilsbach uh, were at the West Coast Aerospace Forum. It was a terrific uh, discussion. Uh, whereas the secretary is fond of saying uh, China, 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 your focus obviously was Russia, 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 uh, which, which has been uh, looming uh, prominently. At the same time, almost everybody is doing armchair analysis on what the lessons learned were. Whereas some folks actually look at this and say, there are some common lessons for example, timely action, having the capabilities, right? You can't build trust right away. Whereas others say, actually, the two situations are very, very different geographically. Uh, Ukraine has a long land border uh, with the allies supporting it. Taiwan is a completely different ballgame, far greater ranges. Uh, well, from your standpoint, what are the applicable lessons here? What are, what are sort of the timeless, bigger lessons from Ukraine that yeah. we need to be learning, as opposed to having maybe one for one right? Uh, um, lessons that some people are taking away from this or trying to. First lesson for me was the info sharing part. And how do we ensure that you don't wait until the last minute to do that? Number two, um, the chief general Brown is, is, is highlighted this, but I'll, you know, use his term integration by design. And that's not only from platforms and technically technical capabilities, but also integrate the plan by design such that um, as the plan gets put together, like I highlighted earlier, uh, your allies, those that are going to participate in this already have skin in the game. They understand the plan through and through because they've been part of it and not just issued it. And then third, I think the recognition that um, we've got to appropriately be able to interoperate um, and provide the right capabilities to the key partners that are going to be part of this. And that's not just Taiwan, but it's more broadly how we um, build collectively the right capabilities to deter and prepare ourselves to fight. So to me, those were the three big lessons that apply across the theaters and, uh, you know, it'll be real easy to kind of go back to doing the way we did business before when it comes to those three topics. And I would hope that we take those, put them, uh, you know, in our clue bag going forward so that uh, we continue to operationally and, you know, from a political and policy perspective, drive on that to ensure we're ready should the um, situation arise. Ukraine's ability to... Um rapidly innovate under fire is so impressive. The Undersecretary for Acquisition and Sustainment, Bill LaPlante, is studying how they uh, innovate to improve our game. What, what stands out to you about how the Ukrainians are doing and how quickly they're doing it that you think is worthy of replication in our case? Um, so that when, God forbid, the shooting starts on our end, we can be equally responsive. Fundamental to, uh, and I really appreciate that Dr. Plan is digging into this, is to be more agile in the way we acquire capabilities. And, you know, there's, for all the right reasons, there's a lot of uh, bureaucratic policies that, that make it challenging. Um, but again, you know, the Ukrainian, <laughs> they, they've got a forcing function for change and reasons to innovate that we ought to, as Dr. Plant rightly is doing, um, absorb the way they're doing that such that we're able to um, shape as we go forward the way we do business. And some of it will be, you know, I, I would quantify it as, you know, you got platforms, you got the way they connect, and then you've got uh, um, the tactics, techniques, and procedures that uh, we leverage those capabilities. And, you know, we tend to spend a lot of time talking about the how we acquire, you know, and where the money goes. But I also think there's a certain amount of, you know, particularly as you look at how the Ukrainians have executed operationally that we are capturing lessons from. You know, you brought up, you know, their ability to move in timely um, situations to make the targeting hard. Uh, I, I can also guarantee as we look at the way they executed information operations, there's an awful lot to learn there. Um, and granted, you know, there's some risk associated with the way they do that. And we ought to digest 
the information uh, that we gather in terms of our lessons and then look to, to find ways that we can apply those because uh, I would argue those have been pretty powerful in the way they've been able to do that. Um, we've, we've got about four minutes and I've got uh, two uh, air power uh, specific questions. I've tried not to make it an air power discussion because we have an air power show and otherwise JJ Gertler, my co-conspirator on that uh, would be on this interview. Uh, but uh, Cobra, on the one hand, Ukraine couldn't survive without us. On the other, we're not really giving them enough, um, in a sense, to allow them to win. And there is a potent air power lesson here. There are, there are those who say, well, you know, th this is war. It's an air stalemate. Um, well, we're having World War I style artillery duels because we don't have air superiority. If this was the United States uh, or the NATO alliance against Russia, it would be a completely different matter in terms of how quickly we would try to get after uh, that problem. What, what's the air power lesson here? Because we have this tendency of actually protracting things as opposed to using air power as the tool to compress timelines. You're saving lives, not costing lives by having it achieve a result more quickly as opposed to just something that becomes a stagnant artillery duel. The first critical lesson for all of us ought to be that um, gaining air superiority is, you know, not a God-given right. You got to earn it. And that's, you know, from an investment perspective, not just in platforms, but it's in people, it's in the command and control and battle management. Um, it, it's something that requires constant attention and um, the appropriate focus on the importance of what it provides to the joint force. And arguably, you know, all the way up to, you know, the senior leaders of our government in terms of our ability to, to be able to, to generate that in a timely, um, effective fashion. And that to me is, is the key lesson from this. Uh, you know, as you distill it into, so, you know, where do we go forward here? That's gonna be a harder discussion because uh, where they are now at in the war, and I, I don't have the latest intel other than what, you know, what I'm reading out there, um, you, you just can't turn it on. It's not a switch. And so for um, us to have a deliberate approach in, in how you continue to uh, shape the war going forward, it's, to my mind, it's in all of the above. We, you know, we got to operate in all domains and continue to, to find ways to support them. And uh, frankly, you know, keep driving on some of the innovative the ideas that they have to try to drive a different problem set, another dilemma for the Russians. But at the end of the day, from an air power perspective, if uh, we're not looking ourselves in the mirror saying, hey, we, we got to be ready to do this because we do not want attritional warfare to happen, that there is absolutely no way that that is uh, the appropriate path for us to uh, to uh, take on any adversary that's out there. And uh, we've demonstrated that when you own the skies and provide freedom of maneuver, not only in the air, but in all domains, uh, that is going to directly impact uh, the timelines and the way that we go out and achieve the mission objectives that have been given to us. It uh, reminds me that, you know, if the Romans could have figured out air power, they would have used air power, uh, I, I, I think. Uh, heck, uh, they figured out how to lob stuff through the air to hit somebody at distance, uh, right? <laughs> so uh, they, they had that going for them. Let me ask you one last question. At the risk of making this into a, a Lockheed Martin commercial, which I do not want to do, uh, you had experience with the F-22. You were the F-35 integration uh, guy at headquarters uh, Air Force. And many people end up talking about the performance of the jet as opposed to the capabilities that a fifth generation airplane brings. Um, uh, F-35 now has become the standard Alliance aircraft. We saw Romania sign up for it uh, as well. What is it that people misunderstand about what fifth generation capabilities are that go way beyond whether or not the F-22 is cool because it goes fast or its stealthiness, but actually all how you bring all of those attributes together that are sort of, right, because I have a feeling like it always devolves to a performance argument. And actually, the F-35 is actually game-changing without trying to oversell the program by just being there 
three quarters of the time. I mean, what is it? Recording terabyte, 150 terabytes an hour or something <laughs> of data comes off the air of each airplane, right? Yeah. Tell, tell the audience yeah. a little bit about and how leaders have to think about this capability, which is just quantum leaps different than an F-15C, which, by the way, is one of the coolest airplanes in history, but ain't the same ball game. Correct. Um, so let me start at and I could spend a fair amount of time talking about this, but at the tactical level for the individual, uh, he or she in the airplane, uh, in a F-15C, the, the pilot is the integrator of all the sources of information that come into the airplane. So if you can imagine, uh, you're seeing what the radar says, you're seeing what the um, radar warning receiver is telling you, you're taking this all in and then building that into situational awareness. Uh, saw it firsthand in the Raptor and watching how it's unfolding with the F-35 at even another level and that work is now accomplished by the airplane. When we talk about uh, avionics that pull together that data, fuse it, and then present it to the um, aviator in a manner that it takes that all that brain power that was required in, in fourth gen airplanes is now done by the jet, which now frees you up to do some of, I'll, I'll use the term battle management functions. You've heard people talk about, you know, the F-22 or the F-35 um, being the quarterback of the fight. This, in my mind, really is saying it makes everybody better because now you have the ability to uh, have broader situational awareness and not just be looking at the immediate problem that you have in front of you, but being able to think two, three steps out in front because of the situational awareness that not only you have in the in the cockpit of that particular airplane, but what you're now sharing with the rest of the, the team out there. And here to air players, we're getting data off the jet to um, our land compatriots over to our colleagues and um, naval capabilities. And then of course, sharing a whole bunch of it with space as well and space feed data to us. So that to me, that is the huge advantage uh, that uh, nations are seeing. And, uh, uh, you know, you can talk to them where they recognize the power of being able to connect and then move the information across the battle space in all domains that allows us to do many of the things that our adversaries are unable to do. And that's the power of fifth gen. Jeff, thanks so very much for joining us. An absolute pleasure. Uh, this conversation could go on for at least another hour. Uh, and I want to say that you're always welcome back on the program, both this one as well as our Air Power one. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, all the very best. Hope you're uh, managing to get reacquainted with your family a little bit uh, and uh, do all the stuff uh, that you wanted to do that 38 years in uniform kind of uh, made it a little bit harder to do. Appreciate it, Vago. Thanks for giving me the opportunity about talk about the things that uh, I was fortunate to be a part of. Look forward to uh, future discussions.